Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Good. Hey, do me a favor. Uh, turn to Ephesians 5. And uh, while we are turning there, we're going to be in the first 21 verses of Ephesians 5. We've got a lot to, to get after. And I just want to say, um, even after that worship set, I'm just so privileged to be a pastor here and to see the stories of uh, lives that God's changing. How great was that video by Missy? Wasn't that an encouragement uh, this morning? And I'm just so thankful to, to be a part of what God's doing here. Um, Happy bridge construction season, right? It's all of our favorite time of year. So, you know, we've got, um, I think in, in Michigan, what is it? We've got winter and summer, and then the other two seasons are bridge construction. So that's good. It means it's going to get warmer here soon. And uh, we're continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. We've been marching through this verse by verse. And I just want to take a quick minute and remind you of how the book is set up. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's all about what we have been given in Christ, Paul is like, this is what Christ has done for us, that we have been chosen, that we have been sanctified, that we have been redeemed, that we have been saved, that we've been made alive. He's like, look how beautiful the gospel is and all that we've been given in Jesus. And then the second half, starting in chapter four, is how do we live in response to everything we have received? And one of the things that makes Christianity different from every other world religion is we don't live a certain way to earn God's love or God's affection or God's favor. We don't have to earn anything. We've been given everything in Christ and we live out of that surplus of love and joy. And if you have your Bibles open, just turn back one chapter to Ephesians 4.1, and this is kind of the main turning point in the whole book. It says this, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we've got to walk in a manner worthy, and we've talked a lot over the last few weeks that it means to live in maturity, that just like babies, are, are, if they're healthy, are going to grow and mature, we as followers of Jesus, when we're saved, we are spiritual babies, but our calling on our life is to grow into maturity. And so what Paul's going to do in chapter 5 is just very, very practically continue to lay out the vision for what that looks like. So here's the big idea this morning. It's this. It's that Christian maturity, which all of us should desire, happens when right thinking is married to right living. It takes two parts. We've got to think the right things about life, and we've got to marry that to right action, right? I've used this phrase before, you do what you do and you feel what you feel because you think what you think, and ultimately, it's our thinking that drives our feelings and our actions. And Paul's going to lay out here four things we need to think rightly about and then live rightly in as a result. Look at verse 1 in chapter 5. It says this, he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, so here's the first thing. It's simple. We need to know Jesus and we need to walk in loving humility, right? It says, walk in love as Christ has loved us. And then Paul goes even further to explain what that love looks like. He says, and gave himself up for us. And what I appreciate about what Paul's doing here is love can be such a vague term, right? Like, I love coffee. I love sleep. I love the Chicago Bulls. I love this church. I am in love with my wife. Like, it can mean so many different things. And Paul's like, it's not some vague type of love, but it's a laser-focused type of love, and it's a self-sacrificing humility, 
that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, that this love means that we are to view others as greater than ourselves and live to be a blessing to others and serve them rather than be served. Paul is echoing here what he says in Philippians 5, uh, or 2, sorry, 5 through 7. He says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. If you want to follow Jesus, I'm going to be as clear as I can. We need to live in a way where we seek to love and sacrificially serve others. It's this mindset that says, I want to be a blessing to others rather than seeking my own interests or glory, right? I've uh, used this phrase, throw up the next slide. It's that the gospel frees us from the prison of being consumed with ourselves, that there is this like gravitational force in our hearts to want to make everything about us. And I would imagine when most of you woke up this morning, the first thing you thought about was yourself, in some way, shape, or form. And our sinful nature, the fact that we live in a broken world means that our predisposition is to want to be God, to want to have the world revolve around us. And I've said for a long time that the more self-consumed we are, the more miserable we actually become because we make really crummy gods. Um, So here, I wanna prove this to you. Can we be honest in church this morning? Can we play an honesty game? You guys cool with that? Okay, like three of us are. That's good. I'm excited for you three. The rest of you can look at me with blank stares. Um, let's play a game. Um, raise your hand. Again, we're church. Let's be honest. Raise your hand if you struggle with worrying about what others think of you. Okay, raise them up. Raise them high. And you're like, well, if I raise them high, then you're going to see it and you're going to think bad things. But no, no, I'm not trying to like create this spiral. Listen, it's everyone. And those who don't have their hands up, they're lying, right? Like we know this to be the case. So let me... Like, for a second, can we just call that what it is? It's pride, isn't it? It's being consumed with ourselves. It's placing us at the center. And, like, it can get so crazy when we let this run that, like, we'll walk into church and we'll see someone we don't even know whispering something to their spouse and we assume it's about us, right? What, 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 is there something in my nose? Like, what's what's going on? Um, It's it's pride. And so can I ask you the follow-up question? When you're worrying about what others think about you, does that make you a more happy, joyful person? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Yeah, thumbs down, right? It makes us stressed. It makes us anxious. It sucks the joy out of our lives. So much of the stress and anxiety in our lives happens when we consume ourselves with us. The gospel says I don't have to worry about my reputation because God says that I am guiltless. I don't have to worry about my future because God is in control and working all things together for my good. I don't have to stress about my present because God is with me and he is my comforter and my protector. Knowing Jesus frees me from having to earn or impress or do anything to gain favor, but it allows me to serve because Christ has done everything for me already. Isn't that beautiful? If it's beautiful, say amen. Give me something, guys, right? Yeah, it is beautiful. We need to know Jesus and walk in loving humility. Here's the second thing. We need to know sin and walk in obedience. We need to know sin and walk in obedience. Look at verse three. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Really interesting here. Paul, when he talks about sin, he he focuses on two specific types of sin. The first is sexual immorality, and the second is covetousness. And I think he does that on purpose. I think he does it for a couple reasons. First, you see how those are polar opposites of the mindset that we're supposed to have in Christ? So if we're called to give up of ourselves and lay ourselves down for others, what sexual immorality and covetousness, it's saying, I want what doesn't belong to me, right? I want what is not mine to have. It is a polar opposite mindset to the mind of Christ. And the other reason he uses these two is what he's saying is that sin resides both in our actions, right? Sexual immorality, that is an action that is committed, but covetousness, it resides in the heart, And what Paul's saying is, is on the outside, you can look like you're doing all the right things, but if your heart is perpetually dissatisfied and jealous and discontent, he's saying you are still walking in darkness, even if your actions you can make look clean on the outside. So there's three things when it comes to sin that I think we really need to know about that we see in this text. Um, The first is um, we need to know the reality of sin. And church, you need to hear this. Mature Christians rightly and fully acknowledge that sin is a real thing. You know, it's funny, in our culture, sin is kind of a naughty word, isn't it? Like if you call someone a sinner or say that they've sinned, oh, how judgmental, what a terrible thing to say. No, no, mature Christians acknowledge that sin is real, that God has revealed himself to us, that we can know God's nature and character, and he's given us a law, a way to live, that he clearly lays out, these things honor me, these things don't, and to break God's law is condemnable, and it is a sin against our creator. And church, here's the other thing. We also acknowledge that this darkness resides in all of our hearts, right? That there is this force in us that wants to make us the center of our universe that wants to reject God being in his rightful place in our lives and place us on the throne, that the darkness we see in our culture and in the lives of others also resides in us. And so we make war against that sin in our heart. Like again, church, very, very practically, there are days when I come home from work and I don't want to love and serve my family like Christ calls me to. I want to go sit in the basement and watch a show and veg out and neglect the very things that God has called me to steward. So I have to pray. I have to get accountability. I've got to make war against the sin that resides in my life. Look at verse 6. It says this. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. And here's what's interesting. Paul's warning. He's saying false teachers are going to come into the church and they're going to say what is wrong is not wrong. And here's what's wild. 2,000 years later, did you know that you can go today to churches all across our country and what they will tell you is, is that God's standards for sex and marriage are outdated? And you can do whatever you want sexually, and you can be who you want, and you can marry who you want, and we don't need to honor God with our sexuality. There will be churches all over the country that will tell you that. 
And then, you know, there's other churches you can go to all over this country that will tell you, no, if you love God and if you're faithful enough, God's just going to give you everything you want. You're going to have a perfect job. You're going to make millions of dollars. You're always going to be healthy. And God is this, you know, cosmic ATM that if you just have enough faith, he's going to keep depositing into your life. And they twist scripture to make it say that God just wants you to experience your best life right here and right now. And so church, isn't it in some weird way kind of encouraging that the same things Paul warned the church about 2,000 years ago is still happening today? Like in some ways that gives me more confidence in God's word that like, okay, no, it is true because it's still happening in a different culture across the world 2,000 years later. But sure, Christians know the reality of sin. And here's what else I would say. There's a real soberness to sin. Like sin should create a right fear in our heart. We don't make light of it. We don't joke about it. We don't play on the edges of sin because we know the devastation it can cause in our lives. Just like a kid lives with a right fear of running into the street, we live with a right fear of the reality of sin and the devastation it can make in our lives and hearts. Here's the second thing we need to know about sin. We need to know it's judgment. We need to know it's judgment. Look at verse six again. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And uh, I would say that one of the things that Americans hate about the Bible and about God is this idea of wrath, right? This idea that God would pour out his wrath on people. It's like, listen, I cannot believe in hell. I cannot believe in a God that would punish. And we hate God's wrath for a couple different reasons. First of all, when we think of wrath, we think of someone throwing a temper tantrum, don't we? Like out of control, angry, like a three-year-old who's hangry. It's like, you're going to feel my wrath. Well, that's not what biblical wrath is at all. Biblical wrath is God's right punishment being poured out over sin. It's a legal term. It's this is the offense, this is the punishment. It's not God losing his temper, it's God being just. And then here's the bigger reason why we really struggle with God's wrath, is that we believe people are inherently good, so wrath doesn't seem fair. Or or maybe a better way to say it is we tend to view the world through the lens of the Avengers. You know that movie series? Where it's like there's some villains, and they're the problem, they're evil, right? So like today, uh, Vladimir Putin would be one of those guys, right? Like, he's evil, he's wicked, look at all the harm he's doing, he deserves God's wrath. So there's some villains that that are evil, and and then there's superheroes, maybe like President Zelensky, right? Look how brave he is, look how he's putting people together, like he's amazing. And then we think everyone else, including ourselves, are just innocent bystanders. They're not bad, They're, they're, they're good, and they're just caught up in everything that's going on. Christianity rejects this view of humanity. Christianity asserts that all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory, all of us have rebelled against God and therefore justly and rightly stand condemned, right? One of the popular phrases that is often said is, listen, I'm not a religious person, but I'm a good and moral person. Have you guys heard that before? Like, I'm just not religious, but I'm good. Well, can we play that out logically? Again, you do what you do and you feel what you feel because you think what you think. And so if someone thinks there is no God, then being good and moral is about as good as you can do, right? Be kind to others, be, be gentle, be, be gracious. Like you're just doing the best you can to be a good person. And that's, that's commendable. It's a good thing if there is no God. But think about if there is a God, right? If we were created to know, love, and worship the creator God of the universe, if, that's per, if that is our created purpose, 
than to say, well, no, I'm not religious. I don't worship God. I don't believe in God, but I'm a good person. It's not a good thing. It's a condemnable thing. We are taking away from God. We're denying God the very reason we were created. So it's not about being good or bad. It's being dead in our sins or being alive to Christ and living and knowing and loving the one who created us. The fact that God punishes sin does not make him evil. It makes him just and good and mature Christians embrace the reality that God is not mocked. And there's comfort in that, that every sin that's been committed against us will be paid for. Every sin we've committed, every sin that's ever been committed will be paid for rightly, either through Jesus and his work on the cross in our place or through God pouring out his wrath on those who don't believe. Here's the third We need to understand its redemption. We need to know its redemption. Look at verse eight. It says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And I love what Paul's doing here. He's reminding them of the first three chapters of Ephesians. He's like, you were dead in your sins. You used to walk in darkness. You are just as guilty as everyone else, but now you are light. And what he's reminding them is, listen, you have been loved, you have been saved, you have been redeemed, restored, cleansed, made new, and you are united with Christ. And he's saying that Christ lives in you and we reside in Christ. So I've been thinking all week, like, what's a really good analogy that I can give you of what it means to be united with Christ? And here's the best one I have. Um, Throw up the next slide. Um, So on the screen right there is a picture of my son Judah and his best friend Eli. My son's the blonde, Eli's the one without the bottom two teeth. And um, these two are quintessential best friends. They always get along. Whenever they hang out, they are just hip to hip together. And and we... um, had the opportunity this summer over my sabbatical to spend a week with uh, their family in Florida. And for an entire week, they were just like that. Wherever Judah was, Eli was. Wherever Eli was, Judah was. And whether it was at the beach or swimming or going to get ice cream or watching shows at the house, like they were just tied together. Throw up the next slide. This is a picture we caught of them at the ice cream store, both licking the window together. Right, we were in line getting ice cream and we're like, what are they doing? They're licking the window. So I'm not saying it's always an amazing thing that they're together, but they're always together, right? And why I love that is this is in a pretty powerful way, a picture of what it means to be united with Christ. Listen, church, when God sees you, he sees you in Christ. He sees Christ work on your behalf. And Jesus is up in heaven right now saying, they are my people and I love them and I've died for them. And we are so close to him that that you can't see one without the other. And Paul is saying, listen, we have been redeemed by Jesus and we have the power that makes us no longer have to walk in darkness. Let's keep going. Look at verse 10. He says this, He says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Look at 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So the second thing we need to know, or the, sorry, the third thing is we need to know the times and we need to walk in wisdom. 
So now he's moving from knowing sin and walking in obedience to knowing the times and walking in wisdom. And church, here's what's really difficult about the Christian life is that only about 20% of life is black and white, right and wrong, right? Where it's like, this is sin, this is not sin, this is right, this is wrong, this is displeasing to God, this is pleasing to God. Most of life is lived in the gray where there's a bunch of different options. None of them might be sin, but we still have to live with wisdom, right? So here's an example. Like, I've had people ask me, do you, God, do you, or Cal, do you think God just has one specific person out there for me to marry? And my answer has always been, no, I think there's a, a, a bunch of people you can marry. There's standards for marriage, and you, you, you know, they need to be a believer and all of these things. But there's a bunch of different people you can marry, but you need to have wisdom because you might not be a great fit with everyone. We need to live in wisdom. There's a ton of different career paths you can choose that aren't sinful, but we need to have wisdom in how am I wired and what would I excel at and what do those in my life say that I'm good at? We need to have wisdom in how we pursue what we give our lives to with work. And what Paul's saying is, is we need to live with wisdom. So what I wanna do is I wanna um, just give us three wisdom questions to ask ourselves right now that will help us kind of determine where we are and if we're actually living for Christ in the gray. Here's the first one. Am I doing the right things for the right reasons? Am I doing the right things for the right reasons? Look at verse 17. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So think about it. If it's God's will that I live with a Christ-like love and humility and seek to serve others as greater than myself, I, I, I need to ask myself, well, are my motives pure in this and not just focus on the actions? Like, church, look here. You know you can do the right things for the wrong reasons, right? We, we understand this. Let me give you an example. So um, Lisa is our volunteer coordinator. She's on staff at the church. And let's say on Tuesday, I, I come to the office and I bring a, a few extra cups of coffee and, and I give one to Lisa. I'm like, hey, hey, Lisa, hey, I wanted, you know, I was at the coffee shop, wanted to get some extra coffee. Here you go. Have, have a great day. Hope you're blessed by this, right? It's a kind, loving, serving thing to do. But here's the thing. If my motives are, man, I really want Lisa to think I'm a great boss. And I want her to go home and tell Wade, man, Cal is just such a great boss and he was so kind to me. Look, he got me coffee. And I want her to tell her, her friends, man, I've got the greatest boss and I've got the greatest place to work at because Cal is so great. And I want my reputation as this kind, loving boss to just, you know, infuse the Tri-Cities. The actions are good, but the motives are pretty terrible, right? Right, you know, it's possible to love people just because you want to be loved for being loving. That's not Christ-like love. But if my... Motives are, listen, Lisa is an incredible asset to our ministry. She works hard. She's faithful. She loves the Lord. And I just want to bless her and thank her. And that's it. I don't care if she tells anyone. Okay, that's good motives. We can't just stop at the actions. We've got to look at the motives. And kids are awful at this, aren't they? I remember last week, uh, we've been encouraging my son, Bo, who's a year and a half older than his youngest brother, Judah. Hey, really include your brother when you play sports. Judah's starting to like sports. Bo loves sports. Bo's better than Judah. But we're like, play with your brother. Include him. Teach him. And then a couple days ago, we heard them up in the room, and they were playing basketball together. And they were running around and giggling and playing together, like playing super nice. And so when they came downstairs, I was like, hey, Bo, I'm really proud of you for how you included Judah. Like, thank you for doing that. And he looks at me and goes, yeah, it's pretty great, isn't it? 
And I'm like, well, it was until you said that, right? Like you just ruined it, um, right? right? Like the, the, the motives come through so clear. We're better at hiding our motives. That's our problem. Here's the second wisdom question. Am I listening to wise counsel? Am I listening to wise counsel? And there's really two parts of this. The first is, am I surrounding myself with wise voices who will speak into my life? And the second is, am I actually listening to them? I know I've told this story before at some point. I haven't told it in a while, but when I was in college, I had a good friend who uh, started dating a girl. And it was one of those relationships where rather than them being in a relationship made both of them better, it made them both worse. And they were miserable and they were fighting and they were always arguing. He was depressed. He was anxious. Like this was not a good relationship. Well, they ended up getting engaged and it wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. And finally, me and another friend sat this, this guy down and were like, dude, break up with this girl. You're not happy. She doesn't treat you right. It's not a healthy relationship. You're signing up for a big decision, and we've got real concerns. And it was right before Thanksgiving break, and they got in a big fight, and he broke off the engagement. And um, I told him, I'm like, hey, come up to Michigan with us. Like, I'm going to go hang with my family. You can um, hang out with us. We'll have fun. We'll take your mind off the breakup. Like, don't just stay in Chicago. Come, come up to Michigan. And he wouldn't do it. He's like, nah, I'm just going to stay on campus. And I knew it was a problem because the other girl was staying on campus, right? And by the time I got back from Thanksgiving break, they had gotten back together, right? And then it was just awkward, right? Because we had said like, oh man, we're so happy you broke up. This was the best decision of your life. And now they're dating again. And shockingly enough, I wasn't invited to the wedding, right? That's how that story ended, Um, right? There was wise counsel trying to be like, hey, we're concerned about this. He just didn't want to hear it. Um, I will say this, most of the time, almost always, again, not going to use 100% words, but almost always when people make decisions that devastate their lives or that they deeply regret, they're doing it in isolation outside of good counsel. And what breaks my heart is that so many times, even in this church, there are people that have a great small group and people who love them and care for them, and they surround themselves with wise counselors, but at the end of the day, they just don't listen. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Can I ask you a question? Are you living like a fool or a wise man this morning? Then here's the third thing, a, a wisdom question. Am I flexing my discipline muscles? Am I flexing my discipline muscles? Am I growing in discipline? And um, I just need to tell you a little bit about what's going on in, in my life. Mary and I have started running. And uh, we have, uh, we've just gotten a treadmill. So three or four times a week, I, I, I run on the treadmill. And here's what you need to know about me. I absolutely loathe running. I hate everything about every minute I am running. When I'm on the treadmill, there are two thoughts in my mind. One, I hate my life. And the second is, when can this be done? And, and look here, there is nothing worse in the world than having friends who are runners, It's the absolute worst because they're always like, oh, it's so great and you're gonna learn to love it and it's such a great stress reliever. They're lying. It never gets better. If anyone tells you that, you look at them and say, get behind me, Satan. They're leading you astray. It's a lie. And then when they find out you're running, it's even worse because they're like, oh, I'm so proud of you, which is exactly what I said to my kids when they got potty trained, right? The whole thing is demeaning, right? I hate everything about it. But this week, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, I'm on that treadmill running. Why? 
I don't know. It's awful. I'm not totally sure, but here's what I like to tell myself. I tell myself I'm doing it because it's good for my soul to be pressing into good, healthy things that I don't naturally want to do. That building discipline is actually a a, a spiritual discipline that will grow me in Christ. Like, listen to what Paul says. He says the days are evil. Okay, so what that means is, is everything in our culture and in our world is kind of pointing us to ourselves. And so I get worried about the people that just live life going with the motions, doing whatever they want to do, because they're going to drift towards selfishness and sin. And think about all of the good things in our relationship with Christ. Think about getting up and um, building a vibrant prayer life that doesn't happen on accident. It takes discipline. Getting into God's word and learning and growing in Christ, it takes discipline. Getting to small group and and being transparent and growing in accountability, it takes discipline. So I am always asking myself this question, are there things in my life that I don't naturally want to do that I'm doing because they're good? And is there anything in my life I'm saying no to that I want to do because it's good for my relationship with Christ? Are we leaning in to discipline? All right, let's look at how this passage ends. Here's the last thing we need to know. We need to know the spirit and we need to walk in thankfulness. Look at verse 18. He says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. And so what's interesting here is, is Paul, he, he, he contrasts getting drunk with being filled with the spirit. Why does he make that contrast? And, and I think he does it for a really, really smart reason. Um, because first of all, I think when you're drunk, you tend to live out of control and you tend to get more selfish. Like I've never met with a person that was like, man, I made all of these amazing decisions when I was drunk last night, right? I've had a lot of the opposite kind of conversations, but drunkenness tends to lead to out of control. But, but another thing is I think alcohol or drunkenness can sometimes be a cheap substitute for what the spirit should be producing in our lives. Like I've talked with people that are like, man, I get so anxious unless I have a drink or two in me. Or man, if I have a glass of wine, that's how I can really relax and and enjoy my life. And and what alcohol does is alcohol is a depressant. Do you know what that means? It's not that it makes you depressed, but it actually works on your brain and depresses parts of your brain that cause stress or anxiety. So so if you're stressed about something or, or, or if you're worked up, if you have alcohol, it will depress that, which will allow you to re Relax. Right, the spirit does the opposite. It doesn't depress anything in our minds. It actually makes us alive and wakes us up to everything we have in Christ and everything that Christ has done for us and everything that we are equipped with in Christ. Look what, look what he says. Look what, look what this produces in us when we're filled with the spirit. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything that in God or to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what he says. He says, when you're filled with the Spirit, you don't live out of control, but you live with thankfulness. Because what the Holy Spirit does is it opens your eyes to the reality of who you are in Christ. The Holy Spirit ex- exists or his job is to glorify Jesus. And so what he does when he moves in our hearts is he gets our eyes back on Christ. So no matter what the circumstances, no matter what we're facing, we can live with thankfulness and worship because our truest reality is made known to us that we are in Christ. And here's how I want you to think about the Spirit. There's a lot of confusion about being filled with the Spirit. Don't think of it as I've got a cup that's empty and I need the Spirit to fill it up. That's not what Paul's talking about. Think of it as a oil field in Texas, 
where there's this flat ground, but under it is a fountain of oil. We, it's always there. It's always flow, or flowing. We need to drill into it and allow it to overflow into our lives. The Spirit is always with you. We just need to allow it to, to have presence in our life and to flow over into our mentality and into our relationships. And it's funny, he says, addressing one another with hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. And some of you are like, I don't like singing. Like the worst part of church is when I have to sing because I've got a terrible voice and I don't like the singing thing. Here's why Paul is talking about music. Because God uses music. He supernaturally created music to connect our heads to our hearts. Like think about your favorite movie, all right? right? Think about what is your favorite movie. And then think about the most dramatic part in that movie. Maybe it's a chick flick where like, you know, the girl realizes she's been in love with her best friend all along and she's running through the city because she, she, she wants to get him before he stops and goes on his train to Seattle because that's how every chick flick ends. Someone's on a train going to Seattle and she's running and she's trying to catch him. What's happening while she's running? Music's playing, right? There's music as the drama increases. Maybe it's an action movie where the plane's about to crash and there's music playing. Why? Because people who make movies know that music connects what we're seeing with our emotions. It's an emotional play. And and, and what he's saying, what Paul's getting at is that when we're filled with the spirit, it's not just our heads, what we know, but it's also an emotional, I love the Lord and I'm thankful for all he's done. And then that produces life actions transformed by Christ. And church, that's why I love gathering together to worship because it's a picture of all that God wants to do. We are saying words that honor God. We're honoring God with our heads and with our mouth. And then we are honoring him with our hearts as we engage in song. And then we honor him with our bodies as we stand surrendered saying, God, you are worth everything. And I serve and worship you. Paul's saying Maturity in Christ is this growth in living for Jesus. Look how he closes. Look at verse 21. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's what I love about this passage. He starts with reminding us of Christ's love for us, and he ends it by saying, we serve and submit to one another because we love Jesus and our lives are marked by what he's done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, this church. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for uh, the stories of your faithfulness and transformed lives and Missy's story. God, I thank you for everything you're doing in this place. I pray that you would move powerfully as we respond to you in worship. You're good. You're faithful. We love you. Would you help us to continue to grow in maturity? Would we know and take serious the threat of sin? Would we walk in obedience? Would we know that the days are evil? Would we walk in wisdom? Would we know you, Jesus, and walk in love for one another? We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.